reputation on fire. It was all Galatians that started it all. Martin Luther would constantly say, the book of Galatians is my mother. It's the thing that he fed on. Galatians changed world history, and you're in this room today because Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the wall of the Wittenberg church because he read Galatians. The story goes on. We could keep going through history. It was John Wesley, that great British preacher who founded the Methodist church, who when he decided, how am I going to start this revival work that God's given me, he said, I know what book I'm going to. Galatians. He preached from the book of Galatians, and the world got lit on fire. Not long after that, who got sent out after John Wesley? Whitfield. The great American preacher came from London, came over to America. He preached across and preached to 80% of the population living in America before the revolution. And those who study American history say that America was 80% a Christian country before the revolution took place solely because of George Whitfield's work that was set on fire by John Wesley. The American Revolution would have been impossible but by the uniting of people on a moral fabric of Christianity that was lit on fire by Galatians. I'm not sure if we've understood the power of the book we're reading. Three months in, we've gone verse by verse, and my hope and prayer is that your heart's been changed by this book. I know it's done a number on me. But if we leave today, and we don't leave with the power that lit the world on fire over and over and over again, we've missed Galatians. Galatians, why is this so important? Because here in this book is the very center of Christian liberty. Here in this book is the most succinct and clear declaration of what Christ has accomplished for you and me. Here in this book is the declaration of the gospel that we cannot get right with God. That very thing that we were made for, that thing that sets our guts on fire, that says this is, this is good, this is what I need. That thing, a relationship with God, fullness of identity, knowing who you are with the confidence of the king, saying you're my son, you don't get that apart from the cross of Christ. You can't earn it. There's no amount of religious duty you can do, no amount of prayers you can pray, no amount of small groups you can visit, or times you can come to church to earn that kind of favor from God. Rather, God's earned it for you when he sent his son, Christ, to die on the cross. This is the clearest message of justification by grace alone through faith. It's justification by grace. And today, in the center of this passage, Paul, as he brings us home, as he lands his plane, like every good author of a book, takes his last chapter to just nail home the main point, to just get the gospel in all its clarity. He literally picks up the pen with his own hand, and he says, I wrote you this whole letter so you wouldn't forget this. And for Paul, he's opening up his heart in chapter 6, and what we see inside of Paul's heart is something we ought to follow, a passionate boasting in the cross of Christ. A passionate boasting in the cross of Christ. Let me pick us up in verse 6. We left off two weeks ago as we were in Galatians. We, we left off in verse 5. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. I'll go through 10 right now. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now this few six verses right here, five verses right there, is couched in all of chapter 6. And if chapter 6 has a theme, it's a theme of boasting. 
You'll remember, we actually, the last sermon in Galatians, two weeks ago, that was the whole idea, that through Christ, what happens is God removes the heart of boasting out of the human heart, replaces it with a heart of humility, and that's how we get real Christian fellowship, is only when we go the way of the humble cross, when we follow Christ, the way of humility. Boasting is the whole theme of this section. Let me take you through it real quick. The end of chapter 5, verse 26 which is my opinion should be the beginning of chapter 6. It says, let us not become conceited. Let us not be full of vainglory. Let us not think we're someone on the outside that we're really not on the inside yet. Let us not become puffed up with pride and become boastful. Verse 3, he says this, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You're a boastful person, but you don't have the spirituality to back up the things you say about yourself. You're just deceiving yourself. Later on, verses 13 and 14, he says it this way. He's revealing the heart of the false teachers. He says, they do it that they, uh, that they might boast in your flesh. Verse 13. This whole theme is wrapped up in a heart that's consumed with boasting in itself. And Paul begins in verse 6. He says, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, in this context right now, I would be the one who's teaching the word. You are the ones who are receiving the word of God from the teacher. And when Paul says share all good things, the word there is a very important biblical word. It's the word koinonia. Some translations might translate that as share your life with. See, when it comes to the church, there's no hierarchy. There's no superiority. The scriptures actually say that every single one of us, once we receive Jesus Christ, are priests. We've received the fullness of the adoption of sons, and there's nothing standing between us and God. Me as a preacher, I don't stand between you and your relationship with Jesus. It's you and Christ. He's the only intermediary. You don't need me. But the one who teaches the word is to share in this biblical fellowship with those who receive it. It's this picture of a church where everyone's coming together and sharing life, opening their homes together, caring for one another in a way that's sacrificial, in a way that's full of love, in a way that's compelling. And, and you know, the, the only way that's possible is if you've removed yourself from the center of your heart. We talked about this two weeks ago. Those who still have ego and self-centeredness as the foundation of their life, those who see themselves as the as the as the final destination of where they're headed and what they're trying to build in their life, will never experience biblical koinonia this way. Sharing all good things, they won't experience it because when you're, when you're still self-centered and ego-centered, every other person just becomes an object to be used to build up your life. It's only once we've received Christ and he begins to transform that human heart that we can begin to experience what he's calling us to right here. This sharing life together. Now I want to pause for just a moment and, and give some personal acknowledgments. This is a church that cares for us, for me and my family as a teacher of the word well. I believe Galatians 6.6 6 is lived out in these walls better than I've ever seen it lived out. This church cares for us. Not only from a financial level as the church and the elders make sure that our family is taken care of so I can be freed up to labor over the text and to preach and to care for you and to shepherd this church well. But also from an all things perspective. When our house was broken into last year and we had a whole bunch of stuff stolen, it was the church that came together. I was getting ready to file a claim with our insurance company. Then all of a sudden the church came and said, don't file that. Here, here's a gift. And it was the exact amount of money we needed to cover everything that had gotten stolen. When we were fostering our daughters through the foster system in Chicago, now we've adopted our twin little girls. 
And, right, and when we were going through that system in life, you guys were with us, right? You knew what that was like for us. You were at our door. You brought us meals. You did life with us. You brought us strollers, a big double stroller to push our twins through the city. You bought us things, and you took care of us as a family. Even last week, a small group came by our, our house and just blessed us, brought cards, personal letters saying, we love you. You put Galatians 6.6 into practice. This is the model. This is what it looks like. But I also want to tell you, I'm not the only one who teaches the Word of God in this place. Across that hall, there's 50 kids on a Sunday that sit in classrooms and sit underneath the teaching of our children's ministry. And they're not learning moralistic deism. They're not learning, here's how to be a better person. Don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. That's not what they're learning over there. They're getting the gospel of grace over there. They're learning what it means to develop a relationship with Jesus, to sit at the throne of the cross, to, to sit behind, underneath Jesus and to learn to love Christ and to become sons and daughters of the real king. That's what they get over there every week, week in, week out. I want to encourage you to love on our children's ministry workers well as an application of Galatians 6.6. 6. This can't be experienced if we're a boastful person. This whole section is, is packed inside this theme of boasting. But you want to experience this the way Paul calls you to experience it? A transformation of the heart has to take place. Paul continues in this section after verse 6, and he gets into this conversation around sowing and reaping, reaping and sowing. And this is, you know, if you go to other religions in the world, you'll probably find a similar proverb. You reap what you sow is not unique to Christianity. And yet Paul sandwiches it in the gospel and he makes it unique to Christianity. We understand you reap what you sow from a base level. It's an agricultural illustration. The seeds you sow in the ground, that's the exact fruit you'll get that'll grow. If you sow bad seeds, you'll get bad fruit. If you sow good seeds, you'll get good fruit. From a base level, we get what Paul's saying here. But I don't know if we understand the heart of it quite fully. In essence, Paul is saying that each of us spend the collective moments of our life sowing seeds. We're always sowing seeds. Every moment, every interaction, every decision, every conversation, every thought, every interaction with your spouse, every interaction with your child, every deal at the office, every patient, every family member, every dinner, every bus stop, every ride through the city, every Uber ride you take, we are sowing seeds that will be harvested. We're always sowing seeds. And whatever we're passionate about, that's the seeds we're sowing. Whatever consumes you, whatever you boast of, those are the seeds you're sowing. That's what consumes you. And you will reap a harvest of the very seeds that you sow. The problem is that the default setting of the human heart is set to ego and set to self. And so most of us spend the collective moments and the collective thoughts we have during the week sowing seeds that build up ourselves and not sowing seeds that build the kingdom. It's very easy to come in here on a Sunday and listen to a preacher preach the word of God and think about sowing seeds for the kingdom. It's a whole different thing to wake up on Monday and see your life as totally redefined by the gospel, totally shaped by the cross, and then every moment be sowing seeds that are a reflection of the cross having its way in your life. The reality is every one of us wants to have a harvest, don't we? You know, that's why we're here. Isn't that why you're here? Don't you want a fruitful harvest in your life? When you think about the moments of your life, your day, your time, how you spend your time, why you work, why, why you do the things you do, 
isn't it because you want to you have this harvest in your life of, of, of reaping good things? Isn't that what you want somewhere? Paul says, if your life is consumed around building your world up, you'll only ever reap that. And that's a very small world. Paul defines that as corruption. He says, but if you replace yourself with Christ, you make him your king, you allow him to take over every passion of your soul, and you allow the cross to shape your day, dictate your moments, you will reap a harvest. You will reap a harvest that you long for, something that taps into the inner recesses of your heart, something that you were made for, that sets the soul on fire, says, yes, I want that. Every one of you wants that harvest. I know you do. Even if you're not a follower of Christ in this room, as I describe that, I know you're sitting in your seat saying, yes, I want that harvest. I want to form that in my life and in everyone else's life around me. Paul says, don't grow weary. Here's the secret, ready? Do not grow weary in doing good. Verse 9. Don't grow weary in doing good. See, when we talk about reaping and sowing, it's so interesting. The very next word out in Paul's mouth is don't grow weary in doing good to others. See, sowing and reaping has nothing to do with you. Well, not nothing, but mostly not to do with you. Paul's very next word is doing good to others. The problem with doing good to others is that people are, in general, pretty hard people. (laughs) Me included. You included. (laughs) It's not everyone else but you. We're all difficult. Doing good to others is hard. It's easy in the short run. It's easy on Christmas Day, right? That's the day you're supposed to be good to everyone. That's the day you're supposed to be nice to everyone. It's hard the day after Christmas, and the day after that, and the day after that. Here's the problem. Here's why Paul has to remind us to not grow weary. Every one of us knows what it's like to grow weary. We're just a handful of days away from the New Year's Day. How many of you have ever started a Bible reading plan, gotten through Leviticus, if you're lucky, maybe early February? And then you fall off, raise your hand, come on, don't leave me hanging here. Me, I've done it, I've done it. How many of you ever had a diet that you said, you know what, I'm going to stick to this one? Oh yeah, I got some more hands raised in the back, okay, good. Yeah, you know what that's like, you're going to stick to the diet, you're going to change something about yourself. I know me, you ever look at my journal, it's constantly just, okay, new disciplines I'm going to start. I got this whole model I work through, I'm going to check off all the boxes each week, started for three weeks. All right, baby step, baby, let's build towards that. I take a baby step. We grow weary. We grow weary. The human condition is such that we grow weary. Why? Why do we grow weary in all these things? Because we're utterly self-centered. Self-centeredness lives in the default mode of the human condition. We can't help it. What we really want is to be lazy and do nothing. (laughs) We want that. We We want the easy way. And Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. If you want to become the kind of person that's known for their love and selflessness towards other people over the long haul and not for short spurts, there is only one solution. You must latch yourself for dear life unto Jesus Christ. It's the only way. There is no other method. There is no amount of discipline. There is no amount of prayer. There's nothing you can do other than latching onto Jesus Christ for dear life. Anything else, you'll grow weary. Anything else, you'll fall off. Anything else, you'll slowly get tired and not live up to the plans you had. But when you latch yourself onto Christ, you're clinging to the one who doesn't grow weary. You're clinging to the one who loves you enough to die for you on a cross and will not leave you hanging. The Christian life is not about doing more and just doing good to others. You want to do good to others and reap a harvest in your life and in other people's lives? It starts at the foot of the cross. 
You sit there and you love it. You sit in your belovedness. Don't forget Galatians. You've been adopted. The crown jewel of the Christian faith is not just justification by grace alone through faith. It's that you've been adopted. You haven't just been made right with God and had your sins forgiven. You've been called the son of the king. The inheritance of heaven is yours. I want to invite you to sit in that for just a moment. I want to invite you to rejoice in that again. It's like we said when I started, how easy is it to go through Christmas and not sit in awe of the moment that we're celebrating. God made flesh. To just sit in the astounding, profound reality that God became human. Things the angels long to look into, says Scripture. He became human. Sit in the reality that you're adopted into the kingdom of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it starts there. You run out, try to do good to other people without starting there. You'll grow weary and fall off the bandwagon. But you sit with Christ. What bubbles up inside of you is Christ. And then he overflows out of you into others. And the goodness you do into others must always be an overflow of a heart that's been sitting at the foot of the cross. you got to sit at the foot of the cross. You know, many of you, you might be in here this day before Christmas Eve and and what you've been saying to yourself is, you know, I know what I need. I need the silver bullet sermon. That's what I've been waiting for. I'm just going to go through my life. I'm going to coast through life. I know, I know. I'm just going to hold on to my Christian faith just enough that I don't totally fall off. I'm going to keep it steady, keep it steady, come to church occasionally. But one day, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I'm certain of it. There is going to be a day, man, someone's going to preach a sermon it's just going to blow me out of my chair. Doves are going to come down. There's going to be horns over in the corner. Angels are going to be singing. And my whole life is going to be changed. And then I'll get real serious about it. There's no silver bullet sermon. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Day in, day out, you sit at the foot of the cross. You rejoice in what Christ has earned for you. And the Christian faith, real Christian faith, the kind of faith that produces a harvest five times, ten times, thirty times, sixty times over in your life is one that is won in day-to-day victories of sitting and loving Christ for what he's done for you. Sitting with your word open and saying, look at these treasures. Look, he's spoken to me. I can know about God. There's no silver bullet sermon. If you're waiting for that day, it'll never come. Today is a day of salvation. Today Christ speaks to you. Today he says, don't wait. Don't wait because every day you wait is a day you've missed. Every day you wait for something better is a day you could have had something better. He says, come to me now. Don't you want to reap a harvest in your life? I know I do. I do. Don't you want to be that person that people come to for spiritual advice? Don't you want to be that person that people say, I know who I got to go to. I got to go to that person. You ever been around a Christian who's going through a hard time in life and you meet with them and there's a profound depth to their face? You see them and you just say, man, that person, I I get it. I see what you're going through. But there's this suffering and yet peace that surpasses all understanding and you're kind of like radiating the glory of God. You know, when Moses came down the mountain in the Old Testament, he had to put a veil over his face because he was literally radiating the glory of God so brightly from sitting on the mountain. You ever been around a person like that? You're just in their presence, and you're like, man, you've been sitting with the king for a while. That's the harvest you want in your life. It's a day-to-day victory. You sit. 
in your belovedness before the king. You read his word. You pray. You join the fellowship of the saints. You stir yourselves on to, to love and good works. And what is formed over the marathon of your life is a harvest. Don't you want that? Paul goes on, and he continues this conversation around boasting. And now, you know, it was old custom in the old days when you wrote a letter of this length you'd have a scribe write literally write with a pen what you would dictate to him but then at the end you'd pick up your own pen and you'd sign off in your own handwriting literally that's what he did here remember the book of Galatians was a handwritten letter that Paul wrote and sent to the churches he had he had pastored and he writes this verse 11 see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand that could be translated See how I'm writing this in Comic Sans, verse 18 font, pink, right? You know what that is, right? Comic Sans font. I remember I used to work in the web industry. I'd make the most beautiful website. I'd deliver it to a customer, and the first thing they do is they change the whole front page to Comic Sans, size 18 font. I'd have a heart attack in the room with them. That's what Paul's doing here. All right, that just means listen up. I got to clap for that? That's good. Galatians 6, 12 to 13, it is those who want to make. Now, here's what he's going to do here. He's going to peel back the false teacher's heart. Ready? It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. All right, if you're just picking up with us for the first time, let me catch you up. Here's what Paul's writing to, the whole book of Galatians. Remember I said, authors bring their books to a close. They land the plane, nail home the main point. He's summarizing everything he wrote in the book. You ready? Paul had planted a church in Galatia. He loved this church, and he had preached a message to them. Here was the message. You are not saved by works. You can't earn God's love. You've been adopted into the kingship, the kingdom of God. You are a beloved son and daughter, not by what you've done, but what Christ has done on your behalf. It's a free gift. So get over yourself and just love Christ. You can't earn it. That was Paul's message. But false teachers had come into the church. And what the false teachers had said was, hey, this Jesus thing's all good. It's great. Have your Jesus. But you really want to be spiritual, you've got to do some more stuff on top of that. You've got to earn God's love. You got to pray enough prayers. For them, it was the Old Testament Jewish law. You got to be circumcised. You got to celebrate certain festivals throughout the year. Until you do those things, until you be religious, you can't really have all of God's love. And that was a direct assault on the message that Paul had been preaching, which was you're only saved by grace alone. Works can never save you. The false teachers, we call them. Anyone remember? We've been preaching this for three months. What were the false teachers called? The name of them. Come on. Pharisees, yes, there was another name. Judaizers, I heard it over here. History has called them the Judaizers because they were trying to make people more accustomed with the Jewish Old Testament law. Now, what Paul has just done in those verses is he's not only said, here's what they're doing and what they're teaching, but he's laid bare the Judaizers, those false teachers' heart. He's exposed them. He's exposed them for what they are. We knew them as Judaizers, and he, he, he gets to two primary motivations of why they were teaching a false gospel, an ungospel. Let me, the first one's this. They had a desire to impress people. This is hard for us. They had a desire to impress people. Verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 13, he says, they, that's the false teachers, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to boast in your flesh. The false teachers, 
were less concerned about their honest spirituality and being a good teacher of the word of God, and they were more concerned about getting a following. They wanted to look successful on the outside. What was their primary motivation? Who was sitting on the throne of their heart? It was themselves. They wanted to be impressive to other people. They wanted to look successful. In the world that they lived in, coming out of the Jewish faith, they were religious people, that looked like having a large following of people who thought you were a great teacher. They said, I want to be successful. They're gauging success the same way our world gauges success. Underneath that desire, motivation is a desire to be impressive. You know, these Judaizers are not too foreign to us, are they? The whole book of Galatians, we've been pinning them as the villain in this book. These Judaizers, these false teachers, and yet here they're very eerily familiar to us. This desire to be impressive is something that's kind of fundamental to our human experience, isn't it? This is why so many of us tend to downplay our weaknesses, tend to upplay our strengths. You ever been in a conversation, you just kind of, <laughs> you don't quite say how much you don't know about what everyone's talking about, you just kind of join in the conversation. Maybe you listen to a podcast on a topic, so you got a little something you can join in, make it sound like you really know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's what we do. Why? Because we desire to be impressive. We like to boast in our strengths. How do, you, how do you measure success in your life? Not here in this room, once again, if it was the middle of the week and someone stopped you on the street and they said, hey, look at your whole life, some total of your life, how do you measure success? What does a successful life look like? Is it how many digits are in your bank account? Is it the prestige of the job title you have? Is success measured by how well your children behave? Or how others see your family from the outside? Success measured by how many friends you have, what kind of following you have online, how good of a teacher you are, how great an intellect you have. How do you measure success? Every one of us has a gauge for success. And if you really want to know what your gauge for success is, check your passions. Look back over the last year. What kept you up late at night because you were worried about how poorly you performed in one area? What got your passions flared up in a way that you lost sleep and got tense? That's probably how you've been gauging success. Here's the problem. Those who have a desire to be impressive always end up being oppressive. Why? Why? Because if you're trying to be impressive with someone, I end up treating you as an object. You're just, you're, I don't care about your heart. I don't care about a harvest in your life. I care about you propping me up and making me feel better about myself. If I'm treating you in this church as numbers, that's all you are. You're a number on an Excel spreadsheet. That's all it is. And I'm just using you to make myself feel better about me. But, but, Paul's actually saying, that's not what you've been called to. See, these teachers are kind of familiar to us, aren't they? Success runs deep in the human heart. The second thing they had was a fear of persecution. There's a fear of persecution. And this is actually the other side of the coin of trying to be impressive with one another. Verse 12, he says, And they're doing this only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They were afraid that if they jumped fully into the Jesus bandwagon, they would be persecuted. If they went all in and they just said, You know what? I'm in it. Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. It's just Jesus. I only want Jesus. Nothing else but Jesus. If they went all that way, the people they used to know and do life with, they're old high school buddies, they're old middle school buddies, elementary school buddies, they're college buddies, all the circles they used to be in. If they knew how much they love Jesus now, well, that would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Wouldn't they get a little persecuted for that? 
they're not too unfamiliar, are they? You know, we've kind of bought into this lie in our modern church. The world around us has had this message for a number of decades now. They said, hey, look, hey, religion, you're all good. Do your thing on Sundays. Uh, believe what you want to believe. Just keep it a private thing. So long as you keep it private, you're all good. We, we can get along. You and us and everybody, it's actually good for society. Have your church. Just don't bring it out there. Here's the problem with that. This book refuses to be a private thing. This is not a private thing. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. That's not just truth for you. That's truth. That's truth for everybody. We all live in that world. He's king over everybody. This book doesn't stay private. And the problem with us is once we bought that message, that Christianity can just be a private thing just like every other religion, well, then Christianity became an embarrassment to us. We stopped talking about it. We stopped boasting about it. We stopped celebrating it. The king, the one who ransomed you from the grave, the one who shed his blood for you that you might have life, we stopped boasting about it. We stopped living as if we had a message for the world and we just kind of secluded ourselves into the walls of the church and thought we were doing everything just fine. You know, it's amazing to me how much theology we can develop in our world in order to not experience suffering. We can just create theology in order to live the very life we really want to live and not gauge our success by the book itself. We are masters at this. We cherry-pick the Bible. Our churches do this. We cherry-pick the Bible, and then we convince ourselves that our life is fine as is. Nothing about us needs to change. The track runs fine. Everything about us is fine. All the while, we've radically cherry-picked the Bible and developed a theology that has no room for suffering. And then we're confused when suffering comes. And we wonder why the kingdom isn't growing in America. The, the, the Bible does not stay private. And in the modern world, you know, we go around the world. You look at what's happening in the nations. I get letters from friends who live in China, who live throughout the Middle East, and I, I hear the persecution they're going through. And we're embarrassed by the gospel here. When we talk about persecution, they're dying for their faith. They're going to jail for their faith today, today. Here in America, that's not your story today. And yet we keep it an embarrassment. These Judaizers are not too foreign to us, are they? We bury our passion for Christ under our embarrassment by Christ. And when we do that, we're just like the false teachers. Hear Paul's heart. Paul says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love that. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Whew. I bear on my body the marks of Christ. He's talking to the people, hear the play on words there. He's talking to a false teacher who's been saying, you need to be marked a certain way by circumcision if you truly want to be a follower of God. He says, you want to talk about marks? Look at my body and the scars I carry on it. I bear in my body the marks of a follower of Christ. For grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. See, Paul is a man with a passion, isn't he? Paul's a man that sat at the foot of the cross and he's got one boast, one foundation that his whole day and his whole life and every relationship he has has been set upon. 
And it's not himself. Something's radically been changed in Paul's heart. He sat before the king of kings, and God has had such a way with Paul, such a way with him. And remember, it took 14 years to get him there. Don't forget that. Galatians, we learned, he was a 14-year intern before he started talking and writing about the cross. He sat there day in, day out, learning, sitting in his belovedness, and it consumed his passions. Don't you want to have a passion like that for the Lord? Don't you want to not be embarrassed about the cross anymore? Don't you want your neighbor and your family and everyone else you know in your life to rejoice with the same rejoicing you just had when you sat in this room and you danced with your feet to go tell it on the mountain? I know you danced. Why? Because worship is good because the king's good and we're made for worship. That's why you danced. That's why you clapped your hands. Jesus is worth it all. Don't you want that passion? Jesus says you don't have to wait for tomorrow. It's yours today. It's yours today. Salvation is today, not tomorrow. You push it off, you'll never come. You push it off, you'll wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow becomes next year. You'll wait till the year after that. Life gets busy, you'll forget it all. The gospel awaits you today. If you wait till tomorrow, you miss what you could have today. The cross calls you. Here's the message of the cross. Paul brings it home. Circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing to me. That's his message. That's what, this is what that means. Religion won't do you anything. It can't get you there. If religion says, here's how you get right with God by doing certain religious practices over and over again, that's every religion in the world but Christianity. Here's how you get right with God. Go on this journey. Here's how you get right with God. Practice these spiritual disciplines. Here's how you get right with God. Come to this spiritual location enough times. Here's how you get right with God. Do enough fast. Paul said, you do that, you'll never earn it. Rather, a new creation is all that matters. God getting a hold of your heart, taking out the old, replacing it with the new, all because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you that your sins might be forgiven. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, and Jesus is the final sacrifice that makes you right with God, and you receive it by faith when you trust in Jesus Christ. Don't you want to live a life of boasting of what God has done for you? I want to invite you this Christmas. As we close this out, as we wrap up the book of Galatians, I want to invite you into a passionate life on fire for Christ. You leave Galatians, studying it verse by verse, and you don't have a new flame flickering in your soul, you didn't read it with us. You didn't read it with us. If you don't understand what Christ has done and you want a new boast in your life, you got to tell someone about it, you didn't read it. I want to invite you over Christmas and all the busyness. I want you to find one hour. One hour. I did this this week myself. I want you to find one hour. If you got kids, I know how hard that is. I got three of my own. Wake up early or go to bed late to make it happen. Find one hour. Sit with the book of Galatians. Open it. Read it all the way through, start to finish. It's two pages. It's not long. Sit and meditate over every word you read. Think about the messages we've heard in this room. If you forget, click on the old ones. They're all online. We make it as easy as it could possibly be for you. Remember what God has spoken through this book to you. Open your words. Spend an hour reading, reflecting, letting the words themselves change you. Pray to God, God, I want to live that passionate life for you. I want to boast in the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, we are grateful for the book of Galatians. As we bring it to a close today, we cry out the one boast of our heart that we desire is Jesus Christ. 
but we know that we lose that passion quickly when we get crowded by all life's burdens. God, don't let this flame go out. That's a work only your spirit can do. Let this flame last. Let us not grow weary of doing good. That's a Holy Spirit work, God. Keep this flame. May it grow into a fire in our hearts. God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to celebrate communion. The communion meal is a meal that is a proclamation meal for a follower of Christ. Let me read to you Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 11, where he describes this communion meal. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For some of you in this room, I suspect that maybe you've taken this meal in church a bunch of times before. But you never thought about what Christ has done for you. For some of you in this room, I suspect that perhaps this was a religious activity many times before, and you're realizing right now that this is a meal of proclamation. The person who takes this meal is the person who says, Jesus is the king of my heart. I'm a work in progress. I got a long ways to go, but he's taken kingship in my life, and I boast in nothing but the cross. If you've never done that with your life, maybe you've been in church all your life, but you never heard it that way, I want to invite you to salvation this morning. You do it as quietly in your seats. There's no embarrassment here. This is just good. This is good. This is good. This is Christmas. This is, this is what we're doing here. I want to invite you to receive Christ. Here's how you do it. You sit quietly in your heart and you say, Jesus, I'm tired of living for myself. I see where that gets me. That leads to corruption. I don't want that. I trust in Christ. His death and resurrection pays all the penalty of my sin. And I want that passion for Christ in my heart. The Bible says you're a new creation. That's Galatians chapter 6. For those of you that have said that in your heart, we invite you to come forward. We'll be up here. We'll be handing out communion. Just one station today. It's a smaller crowd over the holidays. We want to kind of do this family style. We'll gather up and take it together. You take a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup. You can take the elements on your own time. Come up when you feel ready. The band will play behind me and take communion on your own.